0: Okay, so i um, really happy to meet with you today, uh, even though it's not the way we hoped. I hope, I hope this was going to be in uh, the middle of Napa Valley and uh, have a great time with you there and extended time and uh, hang out a little bit, but here we are and one day. Uh, hopefully, we'll get you to Napa, and yeah. you'll see how amazing it is. And you'll say, "We must have OrtCon in Napa Valley." That's, that's uh, my hidden agenda.
1: <laughs> I like the sound of that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's right. Makes it a lot easier for me to get there too. So it's, uh, <laughs> that would be great. Uh, so, uh, Tom, we've been going through your uh, your book, Open and Relational Theology, and uh, it uh, it fits me like a glove. I I so appreciate your work. And um, as I've shared with you, um, I've been thinking about this stuff and really had a, an interesting ride and for a long time been meandering in this stuff and teaching out of this stuff, but didn't know there was a framework that I could call home and uh, already a body of work out there uh, that's, that's been in operation and thinking about this for so long. So I'm so appreciative of your work and what you're doing in the world and your writing because it, it gives that kind of framework for me to uh, be able to share with other people and know that I'm not nuts uh, entirely. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, this is our last week uh, with this uh, series on opener relational theology and we're saving the best for last. So this is the <laughs> chapter on love. You even say this is you, know, <laughs> you get to make this one personal and you save the best for last in the chapter. So uh, if you could, I would love to have you spend just a minute, minute or two talking about um you know your journey uh, from wherever you were to where you are now theologically. What did that look like and feel like? And then uh, we'll segue into what you want to say about this love component, which actually is the key component. This is the key to all of open and relational theology, I
1: think. And uh, we'll get around to that. So I'll give it to you and just tell us how'd you get here. Great. Well, thanks, Pete, for for hosting the conversation and for going through the book with the congregation and exploring these ideas, which will probably sound, as you said, it kind of fits the way some people already think, but for other people, it might sound quite challenging because the the, the ideas are different from what a lot of people hear when it comes to belief in God and Christianity. I was, I like to say, fortunate to, um, uh, be raised in a, by parents who tried to be followers of Jesus. They weren't perfect, but they're probably above average. Uh, I went to church all the time, a little congregation in Othello, Washington, in Washington state church of the Nazarene. Uh, I gave my heart to Jesus many times as a young person. I took my faith seriously. Um, I was a quasi fundamentalist in the sense that, um, you know, I had a really my view of scripture—it had to have no errors, otherwise it couldn't be trusted. Um, my view of God—I wanted to believe God was loving, but I also thought God would kick your butt if you stepped out of line. So I had this sort of tent, this ongoing wrestling that I think a lot of people have. over thinking God really does love me, but God is also pissed when I sin, and you know there's hell to pay. Um, I became convinced that. The purpose of life was to get to heaven, and so became a real evangelist as a young person. My college, high school, and college career that meant uh, being a part of Campus Crusade for Christ, sharing what's called the four spiritual laws. It meant going door to door in my neighborhood. It meant witnessing to people on airplanes. I was one of those annoying people <laughs> for a while, um, and then near the end of my college career, I took a course, I was preparing for ministry at the time, and I took a course in philosophy of religion. And the readings in that course forced me for the first time to really think deeply about fundamental beliefs about God. Um, Because I was someone who took my faith seriously and did a lot of witnessing, you know, the Bible was my little, my sword, and I could go out and slay all the evil in the world. And, and I had good arguments for everything anyone said. But in this philosophy of religion course, I encountered some really smart people, and they had good questions. And I took them seriously. And it brought me to the place where I no longer really had strong belief reasons for believing in God, or at least the reasons I had didn't seem to make a lot of sense anymore. Um, I remember coming to pick up my fiance to go to dinner. Who's now my wife, her getting into the car and me turned to her and saying, you know what? I just can't believe in God anymore. And for me, this wasn't, uh, you know, like some people reject God because they've, been hurt by the church or they see hypocrisy or you know maybe they have a rebellious streak and they want to sow their wild oats or whatever. For me it was none of that. For me it was intellectual. The grounds I had for believing that God exists didn't seem to work anymore. Um, I was an atheist or agnostic for not that long of a time because I kept up the quest to try to make sense of life. And I eventually came to think it was more plausible than not that there's a God based primarily on two things. One, I wanted to believe life had ultimate meaning, and I couldn't make sense of life having ultimate meaning if there wasn't something like a source of meaning that most people call God. And secondly, I had these deep intuitions that I ought to be a loving person. And that other people ought to be loving, that somehow love was the answer. And I couldn't make sense of those intuitions if there wasn't, again, this source of love that people call God. And so that was my reentry into belief in God and, and Christianity. Um, but for a long time, <laughs> for a long time, I had a really thin theology. Like I believed there was a loving God. I thought Jesus was pretty cool, and that's about it. <laughs> like, you know, no no beliefs on eschatology or any of that sort of stuff. In fact, I lost a job at a church where I interviewed where they asked me what I thought of Jesus, and I basically said that, and they were like,, uh, we want you to believe more than that. <laughs> um, but over time, with these sort of fundamental views about God, I begin to add more ideas and rethink what it might mean to be a Christian, be a follower of Jesus. And for me, fundamentally, it's about living a life of love. And I try my best to think about all the dimensions of Christian faith through that lens of love. That allows me, I say allow, maybe I should say that that uh, empowers me <laughs> to um, to take some views that will seem strange to people about God's power, about miracles, prayer, God's relation to time, the things that you guys have been going through in this book. It allows me to explore those as real possibilities because, you know, I don't feel like I kind of went back to scratch and started building up again. And through the lens of love, I'm willing to make some radical reclaiming of ideas that I think are in Christianity. Now, it turns out, at least in my view, that the view of Christian faith I have today, I think, aligns really well with the Bible. Uh, it just looks at the Bible differently than I did 30, 40 years ago. Um But it's those issues of love that have been central and have inspired, allowed, permitted, empowered me to rethink what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus.
0: That's good stuff. So let me ask, um, I know we'll, well, I'll I'll ask this. I can edit all this stuff out anyhow, but I want to get to a question as a devil's advocate thing. And I don't know how to answer this, but... um, you know, you do. You definitely see evidence of uh, a not apparently not very loving God uh, in the Bible. That's calling for wiping out everybody in what we call the Promised Land and an eschatological view where you know pretty much everybody's toast except for a handful and that kind of a thing. So we can get to that uh, later on, but okay. uh, let's we'll just jump into uh, uh, more content on on this last chapter. So. So let me uh, start this question over. So um, I know that love is the last chapter, and I know that it is uh, the, the keystone of uh, this whole position and whole way of thinking. Uh, unpack that for us. Why, why is love critical for open and relational theology, and how is it contrasted from more conventional views?
1: I think most Christians have wanted to say God is love that we ought to be a loving person. people, um, you know, open and relational theology isn't the first theology to talk about God's love, but the way so many Christians and Christian theologians talk about God's love, it ends up portraying God as something at least so unloving from our perspective that it doesn't make a lot of sense. So, um, God is supposed to be perfectly loving, but God, you know, calls people to commit genocide, wipe out whole people groups, according to some portions of Scripture. Or God is, and, and some theologians defend that as saying, well, that must be what God's love is like. Sometimes God just likes to kill people. Or, you know, obviously the flood, Noah's flood. What's the deal there? God destroys nearly every person on the planet and all the animals. I mean, assuming this is actually happened. But even if it didn't actually happen, why is that story in Scripture? It doesn't portray God as particularly loving. Um, Or they've said things like, uh, well, God's love is always giving but never receiving. God's not relational, which is totally different from the kind of love we all express and know in, in reality. So, what I think open and relational theology does, it it does a lot of things, but one of them is it presents an actual framework for making sense out of love. Not just talking about love and then making God the exception all the time, but saying, you know what, the love we think is right is also the love God thinks is right. There's a, a correspondence between creaturely and divine love. And that's key for making sense of the bible it's key for saying to people who are murdering and committing horrific acts that's wrong and even god thinks it's wrong even if you know other theologians somehow justify god doing that i've been really captured boy almost a decade by a passage in ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and in chapter 4, he talks about, you know, putting away these negative things in their lives, these bad habits, these ways that destroy themselves, others in the planet, and adopting these new practices, these new behaviors, these new habits. And then in chapter, what we call chapter 5, verse 1, he has this remarkable set of claims. He says, "Imitate." God as dearly beloved children and live a life of love like Christ loved us. And he goes on a little further. The idea that we can imitate God, I think, is radical. And it only makes sense if this imitating God means living a life of love if there's a real correspondence between what we think is loving and what God thinks is loving, if it's, you know, if it's loving for God to murder people, but not for us, then we've got a real problem here. But if love looks, it can be defined the same for both, then that verse makes sense. And in my way of thinking, open relational th- theology which presents a God as relational, giving and receiving, which presents a God who doesn't want murder, rape, torture, etc and calls people not to do that and we know that's intuitively, we know those things are wrong. If it presents a way of thinking about God's love and ours that just makes sense of our deepest intuitions. Um, and as I said at the start, that intuition, that I ought to be a loving person was really at the core of my returning to believe in God at all. And open relational theology just fills out in complex ways that deep intuition that I have. And I think most people have.
0: Excellent. And I know that you uh, talk a bit in uh, the chapter about uh, how major thinkers in uh, throughout Christian history, you really talk a lot about uh, Augustine, uh, how he thought about love and uh, how that, I mean, he's he's a foundational <laughs> character in yeah. a lot of Christian thought, period. So um, maybe unpack that a little, because I know a lot of people have heard agape. They've heard all, all about that. And I love what you do in, in the book about that. Uh, How would you describe uh, then the love of God? Um, What's what's unique about the love of God and how would you put uh, words around it?
1: Yeah, I define love in this way. To love is to act intentionally in relational response to God and others to promote well-being, promote overall well-being. To put it in much easier language. Love aims to do good. I think that way of thinking about love, it's not the only way to think about it, but I think that way of thinking about love is pretty common in today's world. I mean, there's lots of, again, lots of love expressions. It's very common in the Bible. Most of the time, not always, but most of the time, love in the Bible means something about doing good to others, to ourselves, to the world, to our enemies, to strangers, whatever. Um, But there's another rival view of love that says love is desire. I love pizza. I love the New York Yankees. I love to take a walk at midnight. That's also a legitimate way to talk about love. But We can do all those things and not really be aiming to do good in the world to ourselves or others. Augustine picks up that idea of love as desire and then applies that to his theology. He says, God, well, actually, I should start a different place. He says, we should love and our love is appropriate only if we love what is perfect or best or supremely lovable. And when he uses that word love, he means desire. So we should desire God, which a lot of Christians are going to say, sure, makes a lot of sense. But then since love is desire, God doesn't really love us or creation because God also is smart enough to desire only what is supremely desirable, which is God. So God really only loves God's self. God's a narcissist. And that just doesn't square with the way I and the vast majority of people read the Bible. God, according to scripture, when God loves, God wants something good to be a blessing, shalom, abundant life, There's all kinds of language we use. And so I think it's important if we're going to talk about love to see love as aiming to do good to others, ourselves, creation, even to God. And yes, desire desire is an element of that, but love is more than just desire. And that's where I think Augustine led much of the Christian tradition down a bad, bad road in his misunderstanding of what love is about.
0: Yeah, right. on. almost forgot to unmute myself there. Uh, (laughs) Really good stuff. Um,
1: By the way, is it okay if I do a, a promotional plug here? <laughs> Absolutely. Let me. Uh, yeah. By the way, <laughs> by the way, I have a book coming out the end of February called Pluriform Love, and I really go deep onto this idea of not only the meaning of love, love in Scripture, but also Augustine's version of it and why that has problems, and then propose some some ideas that are. Uh, fit really nicely with the, the books you've been reading in the church the last few weeks.
0: Perfect. Very good. Uh, you're welcome to push that as much as you want. And if you can get me cheap copies, I'll, I'll buy a bunch of those.
1: I love it. <laughs> <laughs> <That'd
0: be good. laughs> well, I love, uh, I don't know if it's well. you talk about. Oh, this is good. All right. So let's talk about um, if God is love. You know, that's safe to say biblically and is the essence of love, the foundation of love, the genesis of love, et cetera. Um, how do we experience this God uh, personally? I, I touched on this uh, a couple of weeks ago with um, God being relational, and I actually use the story of Hagar as an example of a God who comes alongside, you know, one of the least likely candidates uh, in that particular context uh, for such things. Um, but how do we how do we begin to view, and I'll get to the backstory with the question here, how do we move uh, into a relationship with God that is not so anthropomorphic, uh, is panentheistic, so everywhere um, and yet is warmer than Star Wars is force? Uh, how do we I know that is a that's an interesting turning point that, I know I've struggled with and I know other folks have too when we get out of a boxy language of God too much in a persona and less in a presence how do we understand that so talk to us about what does what does relationship with God look like now as a god of love and how's it contrasted from the classic evangelical personal relationship with Jesus kind of a thing
1: Yeah, yeah. Boy, a good answer that requires a book. Um, So I'm going to try to just give you some things that at least are helpful for me to think about. When I think about the people who have loved me best, they're the people who have done things for me that promote my well being in some way, make me a better person, make me uh, happy in the deep sense of happy, not just, you know, um, deeply satisfied. They, they work for my good. They do it in such a way that I'm usually able to either see it occurring because they're with me, or I see the effects, you know, that they've done and, and somehow it's indirectly, but I see it happening. And sometimes, not always, sometimes it gives me warm feelings, other times maybe not so much, but um, there's an emotional element often to uh, the love that people express to me that I think is best. Now, when we come to God, if it's true that God is omnipresent, God would always be there loving us. But if it's also true, according to the Christian tradition, God doesn't have a localized body. God's a universal spirit. Well, then a lot of the analogies we think about in terms of Feeling loved by someone, we don't see it, you know, and we don't get actually touched by God. Um, there's all kinds of differences between that love of a universal spirit loving us and the love our mother, let's say, had for us in some way. So um, it's tempting for some people to think, well, since God's universal and a spirit, God doesn't have any connections with love as we understand it. God is not relational. God is not emotional. God's action for our good has no link to any uh, well-being issues in terms of feelings. Um, And so they'll sort of make God, as you mentioned, the force, or uh, to use technical language, the ground of being. Um, That goes too far. I think we can really talk about A relational giving and receiving individual who's an omnipresent spirit who has real emotions like we do, and also can affect our emotions in some way, but in a way that doesn't involve a divine body walking along the sidewalk and coming up and giving us an actual hug. Now, because I think God is omnipresent and omni-influencing, God can call upon people with bodies (laughs) to come up and give us a hug. And in so doing others act as God's metaphorical hands and feet. So some of the most profound ways, actually I would say all of the profound ways we experience love, I think were instigated by God as a universal spirit in which God prompted others to use their bodies or means to uh, do good to us. But it's not quite the same as God doing it directly as a body. So maybe I would summarize by saying this. God is a spirit who directly affects everything we do and are, but doesn't have a body to exert bodily impact to do some of the things we often think about as uh, paradigms of loving actions.
0: That's good. Um... I think you had a phrase. I don't know if it's in the presentness or in the love side uh, on the love chapter about uh, what we do uh, blesses God in some way. Mm. Uh, talk a little bit about that. That's that's an I don't I don't think I've ever heard people talk about that except for uh, in a worship type sense, and that was always a little muddy, and it was usually couched in the idea of. Uh, God being a deity on a throne that needed to be worshipped. Yeah, God's the deity. So, what does it look like uh, for us to love God as an act of blessing God?
1: Yeah, man, I'm glad you you brought up the worship thing because that's where I first started thinking about this, Pete. Uh, I remember being in a worship service as a young theologian, thinking to myself, "Okay, we're here singing these songs." talking about how majestic, loving, powerful, gracious, whatever God is. um, Is this really just us reminding ourselves of these divine attributes to get inspired? Or is God, wherever God is, sitting back saying, worship me, worship me, I really need this, I'm so great, tell me how great I am with, you know, someone who has a real ego problems and Um, Is that what's going on? I didn't want to affirm either one of those. I mean, I wanted to think that worship was more than just us reciting dogmatic creeds and divine attributes, but I didn't think it made a lot of sense for God just to be so egocentric that, you know, not only did God really, you know, want us to worship God, but God might even get angry if we didn't. I mean, that sounded really bad. And then I realized that if I affirmed both that God is relational in the sense that God is affected by anything we do, which would include praise, and that God has experiences that can be enhanced, God's enjoyment, God's blessedness, God's own experience could be improved in the sense that God is joyful because of what good happens in the world including the good that comes from praise then all of a sudden my praise in church actually counted it mattered it was more than just me reminding myself of who God was and it wasn't like God was you know angry if we, if I didn't you know somehow stroke God's ego it was i could say things and do things in my life and in worship that actually enhance the well being of God. And I think that's true not just of worship, it's true in the conversation we're having right now. It's the true of the way I treat my wife and my family and my neighbors and the people who don't like me, the folks that hang out at the gym. Um, what I do can influence the God of the universe. That's one of the biggest advantages of open and relational thinking.
0: Yeah, and it's provocative. Uh, There's some other things that are related to that that are provocative as well that you say in the book. This is provocative because you talk about improving God's well-being. And part of the challenge with that, the clunkiness of our past thinking about things is God has no room for improvement. No. (laughs) So how do we understand that? It's like another thing that you said uh, earlier in the book, I don't know if it was this book or another book, but, uh, you talk about how God continues to learn. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, I remember saying that from, uh, you know, from the stage, uh, actually, I think it was the week on openness. I think that's where you talk about that yeah. relationship. I think it's openness and just talk. of. I just kind of put out there, well, you know, God is still learning. And it was like people's, you know, it has like a through water on their face or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, yeah. So how do we understand improving the well-being of, of God in that sense? Yeah. I, I get it, I think. I think I can get it in my it. Any more thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, I think you're like most people when they first hear that. That sounds so weird because it's not the God that they have imagined. But if we take Scripture seriously, it sounds, according to most stories of Scripture, like God's experience is changed or influenced by what we do. Sometimes we do things and the people in scripture did things and God was happy, proud. There was blessedness. The things, you know, love ruled. Other times they disobeyed. God was angry. God was sad. There was ill being rather than well-being in the world. And so those biblical stories give the impression that God's They don't say well-being, but well-being or experience or mood or something like that can be affected by what happens in the world. Now, um, I think God's nature is unaffected. So, you know, God's not like the Greek gods who uh, can have a hissy fit and, you know, end up destroying the planet because he gets mad. I mean, actually, there are some biblical stories that suggest that, but I think those misrepresent God because I think the vast majority of Scripture points to a God whose love is steadfast and whose nature is eternally secure. So I like to say God's experience can be affected and changes, and God's well-being can be enhanced, but God's nature is steadfast, unchanging, immutable, because that never, uh, that's eternally the the case in God.
0: Yeah, that's really good. That helps a lot. Uh, I'm trying to think if, this has all been great. Is there any, I know you mentioned the Ephesians uh, chapter five uh, passage. Is there any other narrative that really jumps out at you to encapsulate, uh, you know, what you want to say about love other than the life and teaching of Jesus's life and all yeah.
1: that Yeah. Yeah, and preparing this new book pluriform love. I decided I would read every instance in the New Testament in which the word agape shows up and the word philea. There's like 330 some instances of agape, its derivatives and and maybe about 30 or so of philea. And uh it's really it was really interesting exercise. I found myself focusing uh an awful lot on 1 John chapter 3, actually chapter 4, I'm sorry. First John chapter 4, um, classic phrase, verse, as i memorized as a little kid, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God, knows God, but the one that doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. And later on that passage, a line I really like, we love because god first loved us the richness of that fourth chapter in first john provides all kinds of helpful language to talk about god as i what i would call essentially loving that god always loves all the time it's god's very nature and that we ought to live lives of love and that's possible not because, you know, we really try super hard and God sits on the sidelines, but because God loves us. We love because God first loves us. And I would say empowers and inspires us to love. So when I think about uh, love in scripture, and I think love is peppered throughout the scriptures, but that First John 4, uh, that First John chapter 4 passage, man, it's got a lot of great stuff there. And... Um, it's been fun to go through that as I prepared this new book.
0: So you'll be uh, hitting a lot of that in the new book? Yeah, yeah. That sounds really good. Well, that's good. Any final thing you'd want to say uh, in terms of overview kind of statement uh, to, you know, put a bow on this thing?
1: Yeah, I want to say that this open and relational theology that you all have been working through, um, I'm guessing that some of you are reading it and thinking, yeah, it's kind of what I've been thinking all along. I may not have had the words to articulate it, but this theology just fits where I already think. Others of you are looking at it and thinking, "Eh, I don't know about this. Um, I like some of it, other parts I'm not so sure about. Maybe a few of you are sort of, you know, get thee behind me. This is horrible. I don't know. (laughs) But um, I think that variety of responses is very normal, very appropriate. Um, I don't want to come across as having all the answers in life. Uh, This particular way of thinking makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm finding a growing number of people, not only in Christianity, but outside the Christian tradition, are finding this way of thinking just makes sense with the way we live our lives, and uh, go about thinking about ultimate reality that we call God. So whether or not you're a person who says, yep, this is it, this fits perfectly, I already pretty much affirm this, or you're somewhere other than that, I encourage you to give it a shot, to continue to wrestle, work through, think about the implications of these ideas, because uh, more work needs to be done by everybody to uh, figure out how this way of thinking uh, deals with the particular questions you and I face on a day-to-day basis. So thanks to you, Pete, for leading everyone through the process. And thanks to each of you for uh, taking the time to, to consider these ideas.
0: Okay, and a quick little bonus uh, question for you. Uh, okay. I want to respect your time here. Um, yeah. So uh, how would you advise people who are uh, either in uh, a family environment, extended family or friendship or, or whatever, where they are um, really feeling comfortable uh, in this theological framework? Uh, they've been coming to Crosswalk and feeling pretty good. It's making sense. But people who are dear to them and they love a lot um, are deeply rooted in other uh, theological frameworks and in different ways are outright hostile so you got any advice on that about how do we yeah how do we move forward in a loving way uh, when there is hostility
1: uh, toward this as heresy yeah <laughs> in our- you know three things come to mind um, none of these are like silver bullets it's going to solve all the issues but three things come to mind first thing comes to my mind is I've given up thinking the whole world, every last person I meet is immediately going to accept this view. Um, That's just not realistic. Uh, It is the case that many people who initially reject it end up coming back to it. But, um, you know, people aren't just going to, not everybody is instantaneously going to say yes. Some will, but others won't. So that's the first thing I think about. Second thing I try to remember when I'm dealing with people who are resistant in the ways you've mentioned is I try to remember the past Tom, (laughs) you know, me in a former way of being years, decades ago, who was, uh, you know, would have been resistant to a lot of these ideas as well. Would have thought they were heretical. Um, and I, I try to have sympathy on people by saying, you know what, um, I used to be like that, and maybe those folks will change. I need to give them some space and some time. The third thing I would suggest, and this is more uh, this is more proactive, um, And this also reflects my own personal bias or perspective. Love is the biggest card to play. When I'm in arguments with hardcore Calvinists or fundamentalists, I play the love card over and over again. I say, love seeks what's good, the well-being of others. God is love. God's love wants our good in all creation. That doesn't mesh well with some theological perspectives, but I found that playing that love card, not only with Christians, but with those outside the Christian tradition, Boy, that resonates with lots of people and maybe they don't accept it quickly, but they, the way they act when I play the love card by talking about the centrality of love reveals that they know that there's something right about that. And they have maybe can't grasp it or can't make it fit in their current scheme, but uh, they can't easily brush it off. So my proactive advice would be Talk about love, live a life of love, uh, preach love.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. And you're right. That that tends to be a disarming uh, kind of a an approach that that works. So thank you for that. That that'll yeah. probably
1: make the cut. That's good stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's very good.